On Sunday mornings, we've been going through 1 Peter together. If you have your Bibles and you'll join me there in 1 Peter, and if you do need a Bible, the men in the aisles have a few copies. They'd be happy to give you a copy if you slip your hand up and get their attention. We left off in our last study in 1 Peter chapter 2 at the end of verse 10, which would have us in verse 11, and we're going to go from verse 11 down through verse 17 together this morning. And if you're turned to 1 Peter chapter 2, would you stand with me out of respect for God's word? As I read our passage of scripture, 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 11, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Father, we ask as the king of kings this morning as we stand here before you that in some way, Lord, this could begin to reflect the posture of our heart, Lord, standing at attention, wanting to hear, Lord, your commands, your decrees to our hearts as your servants that, Lord, you would speak and your servants would be listening. We ask, prepare us in every way that that applies and is necessary for each one of us to have an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church. Lord, bless your word. Speak through it now to our lives. We ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, how important do you think is our Christian testimony or our Christian conduct before the world in which you and I live in? You know, I found a quote from D.L. Moody, a great preacher of old, who said this. D.L. Moody said, out of 100 men, one will read the Bible, 99 will read the Christian. And there's a lot of truth to that. When people are looking to understand things about the things of God or what it means to follow Christ, more often than not, most people, I was one of them for 17 or so years for my life before I came to Jesus Christ, who I didn't pick up a Bible and read it. And some may do that. And, and certainly I think that is probably the, the, the wisest and the clearest path if you're trying to search out spiritual truth is to go to the word of God above all else because even God's people are faulty but the reality is this is just like Moody said most people will typically read the life of a Christian through observation in the world a lot more quickly and will usually draw their conclusions about Christ and Christianity and whether they want to follow Jesus off of what they see by looking at our conduct as Christians and our text this morning shows shows us very clearly that the conduct of a Christian should indeed communicate a message. 
That's the point God's word is trying to show us here, that the conduct of a Christian, it should communicate a message to the world in which we live in. Peter had just declared to us in verses 9 and 10 regarding this incredible privileged position of all the work God's done in our life, that part of the reason that God has worked in our lives is so that we may also glorify him, that we may proclaim his praises among the world that we live in. So it should go without saying, it's quite evident that a Christian then should live in an honorable way among the culture in which we exist in. Look with me again back in verse 11. We pick up with Peter's thoughts. He says, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So Peter here begins this next section, notice in his letter, by begging believers, by begging those of us who are born-again Christians to resist and to refrain from those sinful temptations from those fleshly lusts, he says, that seek to overcome our lives. Now, a reading of the Gospels makes it very clear to us that Peter, probably above all the other disciples that we read things about, Peter was clearly someone who was very familiar with spiritual weakness and with spiritual failure and with his own shortcomings in his humanity. Peter knew what it was like to wrestle with his flesh and temptation and doing that which is wrong rather than doing that which is right. And on more than one occasion, in fact, the Bible records it, we know Peter lost the battle with his sin nature. And he was overcome by the sinful tendencies within himself and did that which was wrong rather than right. And I am certain, just like you and I here this morning, Peter regretted deeply each time he lost that battle, when he denied the Lord, when he failed, when he was overcome by his sinful tendencies, and he experienced the corresponding consequences that come along with the times when we walk in the flesh rather than walking in the spirit, when we succumb to temptation and we sin against God still as a Christian and we fail the Lord or deny him in word or thought or speech or our behavior in some way. And I say that to point out to you that Peter understood both the personal consequences to himself as well as the effect that our sin as a Christian has as well upon others who we are connected to, whether we like it or not. And Peter, therefore, here we have him speaking from his heart as the Spirit of God directs him as a fellow Christian who understood spiritual pressure and understood the battle and the temptation and the wrestling we go through with our own sin nature. And here is a fellow Christian who had both at times overcome in victory and had learned to walk in the spirit and praise God when we do that but he also understood occasions when he lost the battle and surrendered to sin and the corresponding results of both and he had observed how that process had unfolded no doubt in the lives of many other Christians around him in the church and as a spiritual leader and thus from a place of understanding but you can tell as well from his language, also from a place of urgency, he is now appealing to other believers here in verse 12, saying, Beloved, notice he says, I'm begging you. Yeah, I appreciate that there was a sense of not just understanding, but an urgency in regards 
to the, 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 the potential disaster that happens when we as Christians sin, and more than that, when we sin publicly in front of other people who know that we're Christians. So Peter says, look, I'm begging you, I'm beseeching you, Make a conscious, deliberate effort, he says here, to refrain from doing what is wrong and sinful. And notice the basis of his, his appeal is, is in regards to their spiritual position. He says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Now, those are two terms that speak of, in a sense, being a temporary resident on foreign soil, being away from your homeland, being in a foreign country, and kind of journeying in a foreign place as a temporary resident. See, it's important that we recognize as Christians that is our status. Again, Philippians 3 says our citizenship is in heaven. And yet we still coexist, in a sense, here on this planet. Our heart is destined for heaven. Our spirit and soul, our citizenship is intended with heaven, with our king, and where we'll receive a glorified body. But right now we're still in this fallen, cursed body physically with a sinful flesh and we're on this planet right now but we're just passing through we're sojourners we're pilgrims but we have to remember that that is our status because that has a direct effect upon how we live our life here and now in the sense that we should recognize we should not be embracing wholeheartedly all the culture and customs and the ways and patterns and lifestyles of this world because this current world system is governed by and given to living according to fleshly lusts. This current world system in its patterns and lifestyle is governed by a standard that says just indulge your fleshly lusts. And when Peter uses that term, verse 12, fleshly lusts, be careful there. He's not just specifically talking about sexual sin, as we often hear the word lust in our mind gravitates towards that. There's a much broader concept that Peter's trying to convey here. Fleshly lust, the term here, he's referring to all of the strong cravings, the lust, the strong desires and persuasions within us regarding our sinful nature, what the Bible often calls our flesh, using a synonymous term. So he's talking about the bodily appetites within us that yearn very strongly to be satisfied and often in inordinate ways or unacceptable ways or inappropriate ways. Those feelings that we experience, the thoughts in our mind that we want to exercise that are not according to the will of God, but yet there are strong feelings to want to do something that's not according to God's will. There are very strong persuasive thoughts that make us crave to do something that's outside of God's will to satisfy those desires of that natural inclination within every single one of us to respond to our lower nature, our sinful nature, that natural tendency within every person to want to do what's wrong, to want to do what's evil. And often that comes with strong cravings, does it not? To want to be fulfilled. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 illustrates these desires, these fleshly desires. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5. He says the works of the flesh are evident. And then he begins to give a list, not exhaustive, but descriptive. The works of the flesh are evident, which are, he says, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, 
sorcery, which is the Greek word pharmakia, where we get the idea of drug usage. Interesting, the Bible's mentality towards drug usage, pharmakia, a form of sorcery. Hatred, he says, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Quite a list. These are the works of the flesh, these fleshly lusts that are warring against our soul, saying, satisfy me, fulfill me, indulge this. And Ephesians 2 tells us that the unconverted person, which all of us once were, let us never forget, even if you're a Christian this morning, that the unconverted person is marked by living a life, Ephesians 2 says, by conducting themselves according to the lusts of the flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. That's the life. And sort of marked by before we're converted and embraced and, and saved by Jesus Christ. We live a life that is conducting itself according to the lust of the flesh and we are fulfilling the desires of the lower nature and whatever comes into our mind. Yet the Christian, the Bible says, we have been set free by the power of Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. We still have a sin nature and it's like gravity pushing down upon us but yet there is a higher nature that comes into our soul when we embrace Jesus Christ a new nature that sets us free to overcome the, the heavy gravity and power of the sin nature trying to keep us in that lower way of living according to the flesh that enables and empowers us to live without gratifying these fleshly desires. So Peter's saying in light of who you are we got to live accordingly. And he says that often begins with seeking to refrain from indulging the sinful temptations, the fleshly lusts that want to govern us and that our world is all given over to. And he refers to that internal struggle in very interesting language. If you notice in verse 11, I love that Peter uses such picturesque language regarding this struggle that we all deal with regarding our sin nature. He says these fleshly lusts he says, which war against the soul. He uses military terms. I like that. They war against your soul. See, even after we're saved, as I said a moment ago, even after spiritually we're supplied the power to now walk in victory over sin, the reality is the presence of our sin nature does not depart from us still. Yes, we've been given the power through Jesus Christ to have the freedom to choose to walk in victory, to experience God's victory and deliverance over sin and its domination in our life. Paul says, Romans 6, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. That is available to all of us as Christians, but yet the presence of the sin nature still is there as long as we reside in these fleshly fallen bodies and those old carnal nature tendencies are always trying to rule over us. The carnal nature wants to take the throne in my life again and my flesh is constantly trying to keep control over me. Your sin nature will always be battling to get you to gratify it to fulfill its lusts and to satisfy it. And this creates, if you haven't noticed yet, this wrestling internally in your soul, in your inner person, that is common to any Christian, that it literally wars against your soul. 
Listen, this morning, if you are wrestling with sinful temptations, if it feels like you're battling desires in your mind and your feelings and your thoughts to want to indulge something that's not God's will, that is sinful and you know is wrong, listen, in one sense, that's a good thing. Spurgeon used to say, dead men don't wrestle. See, before I was saved, I didn't wrestle. I just satisfied myself. Before I was saved, if I was angry and I wanted to act angry, I just had an outburst of wrath. If I had a selfish desire to do something and a craving for something, I just indulged it because that was the way I lived and I had no other recourse or option. I had to fulfill the lust of my flesh. I had no power or conviction or ability to do otherwise. But see, when you get saved, the Spirit of God comes within and now there's this wrestling that goes on within the Christian. And there's literally a war against your soul to abstain. And I appreciate the word war because a war implies what? A war consists of many battles. That's what makes up a war, many multiple battles. War implies a state of ongoing conflict, continuous battles, a military campaign with continuous attacks and assaults. And this is what the spiritual battle is like, the struggle against the sin nature. It's not just one victory and it's all over. I wish. <laughs> Don't you wish it was like that? Just one victory and if you get through the victory, it just all, that would be wonderful. Listen, when you get to heaven, that victory will be experienced. You'll get a glorified body and it will be done. But for now, it's normal to wrestle. It's natural that you struggle it is typical that you wrestle with the fleshly nature in all the different territories and sometimes those attacks are severe and that battle happens on different fronts whether it's anger or lust or lying or drunkenness or drug use or again you pick the thing it comes on all different fronts in our lives and with battles and attacks, our flesh causes this internal conflict that we have to fight through to try and walk in the Spirit and not gratify the lusts of our flesh. Paul describes it this way in Galatians 5.17. He says, The flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another so that you often do not do the things that you wish. Listen to how Paul the Apostle describes his own frustration with his flesh in Romans 7. This should sound very familiar and honestly quite liberating as you listen to him share his own Christian experience. Paul says, I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. You go, well, that sounds crazy, Paul, but it also sounds a lot like all of our lives as Christians that constant wrestling, that frustration with our flesh, where Paul at the end of Romans 7, he says, you know, you know, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is so frustrated. I'm so frustrated with the battle with this flesh. To where then in Romans chapter 8 and the whole chapter, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul doesn't say what will deliver me from this body of death. He says who will deliver me. 
See, no program, philosophy, principles followed will ultimately deliver from the power of the sinful flesh. It is only the person of the Lord Jesus Christ through his resurrection power and his spirit that can give us the ability to overcome the fleshly struggle and the battle. But here we get very practical as the word of God says, look, one primary way to begin very simply is this. Peter just says, abstain. Abstain. That word abstain, when you look at the term in the original language, clearly implies to constantly hold yourself back from. To constantly hold yourself back from. It speaks of deliberately refraining from something through personal decision and through a, a resolved effort of self-denial. Let me get more clear. To illustrate, it means that you have to learn how to say no to yourself. It means that I have to learn how to say no to myself in regards to my feelings at times or my thoughts or my strong cravings or yearnings or desires. I just simply have to learn how to tell myself no. I know you want to do that, but you can't do that. Listen, the presence of a desire does not indicate the right for satisfaction. Okay, if, if, if I'm hungry and I'm with a group of people, if I continue to get more hungry, look, that's a natural desire, a natural hunger desire. But it would not be appropriate if there's not food present at the moment instead of denying myself and waiting until I can get an actual proper meal to indulge myself in my hunger. It would not be proper if I began to bite or chew on the arm of someone next to me. Hey, well, I got a desire. What do you want me to do? I know you have a desire, but the fact that you have a desire, Tony, doesn't mean that you have a right to satisfy your desire any way you want or at the moment that you have it. It's, it's abstaining, abstinence. Imagine, God came up with that very intelligent word. It's certainly very critical in a culture we live in that is very sexually loose. The Bible tells us, 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that you should learn how to possess your own vessel in sanctification of honor, not in passion of lust like the heathen who don't know God. Again, certainly the power of the Holy Spirit is available to help and enable us, and we should yield to that, but... Let us never be super spiritual in disregard. We still have to make the right choice to receive the help of victory in our lives. Romans chapter 6 through 8 give great, great teaching and explanation in regards to these very realities that we're discussing in greater depth. Abstaining from sinful desires many times is a collective uh, kind of cooperative thing of human decision to abstain in faith and to do what's right and at the same time his deliverance spiritually that I might receive the power that I need for the victory to overcome my flesh. So Peter says abstain, I beg you. Verse 12 he says having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that when they speak against you as evildoers they may by your good works which they observe Glorify God in the day of visitation. So here Peter speaks of the positive side of living well and pursuing simply what is righteous. Verse 12, he says, look, have your conduct honorable, he says, among the Gentiles. Now that word Gentiles, many times in the Bible, refers to those who are simply just non-Jewish by national descent. But the word Gentile in the Bible on occasion is also used interchangeably to refer to those who don't know God. 
It's used in Ephesians 4 and other places, not as a reference to someone who's non-Jewish, but as a reference simply to someone who would be a heathen or a pagan or does not have a relationship with God. Sometimes the Bible calls them a Gentile. That's the reference here. And Peter is saying here in verse 12 that the unsaved world is watching and it is witnessing and observing the way that you and I live. You see what he says in verse 12 in our text there? He says, your good works, he says the words which they observe they observe the way that we live in our conduct in that day there was great roman persecution and they were speaking against the ancient uh, christians in that day as peter says as evil doers people in that very anti-christian culture and in the roman government were misrepresenting who christians were and they were basically falsely accusing christians saying false things that they were actually evildoers. They were saying things about believers like that they were trouble starters, that they were intolerant of those who didn't serve God as they did, that they were anti-government and, and they were anti-social and unloving and leading a rebellion against the government and the culture by their intolerant views. And Christians were being spoken of as evildoers. And listen, the reputation of Christians was greatly at risk in the culture. Now, I want you to think about our present day and age. Doesn't that sound quite familiar? Once again, in our current generation today, not much has changed. People are making out Christians and followers of Jesus Christ to be the evildoers in society. That we're the ones causing all the problems falsely accusing us of things that are not true, that we're the ones creating problems in society, and therefore, as a result, the reputation of Christians in this generation is greatly at risk as well. And that's why the Bible says it's all the more pertinent why we must be wise and consider how we live and the way that we behave among society and among the culture in which we live in because oftentimes our conduct speaks much louder than any words or things that we can say with our mouth. So Peter says here, our conduct should be, he says the word there, verse 12, honorable among the unsaved. That word honorable means beautiful, appealing, or attractive. That's the idea there. The way we conduct ourselves in the world is important because it speaks tremendous volume. Listen to what Philippians 2 says in verse 14 and 15. It says, do all things without complaining and disputing. I'm sunk right there. <laughs> do all things without complaining and disputing. But then he says, that you may become blameless, the idea is without guilt, and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights. Oh, what's that mean? What, what does that have to do with it? Well, listen, let's put you in your job place. And there's 10 other employees and you're all given the same instruction. And the automatic response is nine other employees who don't know the Lord all start to grumble. Well, that's stupid. What do we got to do that for? That's a dumb policy. And they start complaining and, or disputing or even challenging the boss. But you understand respect for authority. And you understand that you shine as a light. So you say, you know what? I'm just going to do what the boss asked. And I'm not going to complain like everybody else. And I'm not going to dispute and challenge the employer, even though I may not like the policy or I may not agree with it. All of a sudden, you shine in a different way compared to the other ones that are there. 
And the Bible's saying, listen, the way we conduct ourselves, it has an effect. That's why Peter says, verse 12, have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter says our good works is something that can lead to people who don't know God repenting of their perspective towards Christians that is erroneous and wrong and can even lead to them ultimately glorifying God and being ready for the day of visitation from God themselves. Jesus said the same thing in this way. Jesus said to us, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Listen, we have to remember as the family of God, as God's children, that the way that we live our lives in our world can really radically change the perspective that people have about God. It can correct wrong ideas people have about God. It can cultivate an interest in people to actually realize, you know what, maybe I should follow God. It can correct the erroneous ideas that maybe other people have began to develop or have come to a perception about because they saw other people who claimed to be Christians but lived in a certain way and now they have this very defensive sort of stigma in their mind and their attitude towards Christianity or the Bible or things of God and all of a sudden here you come and you live a little bit differently as someone who professes to be a Christian and all of a sudden they're beginning to have a different perspective and Peter actually says here that, that when they speak against you by your good works that they observe, they might actually turn and start to glorify God instead of mock and criticize and be angry. 2 Corinthians 3 says that we are living epistles, that is letters known and read by all men. Great question to ask ourselves this morning. As people read your life, what message do they get about the Lord? As people read your life, in your school, in your job, in your neighborhood? What message do they get about Christianity? What message are they getting as they read your life? The point of the text here is simply this. The best way to change the mind of those who are critical towards Christianity and critical towards Jesus is often by saying less and showing people more through holy conduct, through honorable living to God, the authenticity of what it means to follow the Lord, to correct their wrong ideas. In the light of these things, Peter continues, verse 13, saying, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. So Peter here gives some instruction calling Christians to live as good model citizens in our culture and society. He talks about this along the lines of submission. And I find this very interesting because if we were to be very humbly honest with ourselves by nature, by nature, mankind is exceedingly proud, we're stubborn, we're rebellious at heart, and as a result, we all naturally tend to resist authority. We all naturally tend to, to struggle against authority. We do not like the thought of another person being in charge of us. We do not like the idea or experience of someone else telling us what to do. And listen, that's first seen in a toddler, if you've raised children. 
when all of a sudden they realize that they cannot rule the house or rule the world and, and you get the rebellion that comes forth. It's first seen in a toddler that we don't like authority. And then it further manifests itself throughout the teenage years, many times as well. But from what I see and observe, many times that continues on and it's still struggled with many people as adults. That we don't like someone else telling us what to do. We don't like the thought that someone else is in charge of us. And therefore, the Bible's saying there's one area here where we can really set ourselves apart as a Christian. And we can really have an impact by making a distinction in this way, our attitude towards authority. And the way that we submit to those who are in places of proper authority, we can stand out as very unique among the rest of the world because it is rare to find someone that is just inclined toward being very cooperative. It's a very rare thing in a job place, in a family, in a school system, even in the church, to find someone who's just very compliant and cooperative. They're quick to respect authority. They don't have to question everything. They don't have to challenge things. They don't chafe under it in their attitude and responses, but that they can just, hey, okay, and, and just go. That's very rare to find a personality like that. And I tell you, for employers, that's a gem. An employer finds that, they love that. Those are the kind of people you love. Not that I'm saying employers are arrogant and they don't want to hear thoughts and opinions. I think any wise leader should listen to people around them. But it is a wonderful thing for someone, whether, again, they're an employer in a business or you know, running an organization or whatever, that they find... It's very rare. And as Christians, understanding God's respective idea towards authority and order and culture, we can really distinguish ourselves and stand out by being someone with a very submissive spirit. Let's always remember Jesus himself in his life in the flesh manifested and demonstrated submission. Though he was God and he knew everything, he really did know everything. Do you see what I'm saying? He knew everything. And he had all authority and all power and, and perfect abilities, and yet he placed himself under authority to his imperfect parents. He placed himself under their authority. He placed himself under the authority of even sinful men on occasions. And one of the things I believe Jesus wants to develop in us as Christians, making us more Christ-like, is the same humble attitude and, and, and a respective nature that can place ourselves under authority when it's correct and in the right realms to be submissive to those in authority. Peter says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Again, God has designed authority and order upon the earth in many different institutions. And this is God's design and plan for healthy, func healthy functioning in all relationships, the family, government, the church, so on and so forth. God has designed order and authority. It's intended for healthy function. Romans 13 says a very similar thing. Let me read to you a text from there. Romans 13, 1 through 4 says, Let every soul be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, listen, resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword, a weapon, the idea is in vain. For he is God's minister, 
an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Take notice, Romans 13 talks about every authority that exists has been ordained by God. It's his design to have order and authority, to have healthy function in society and civilization and families. And here, talking on a civil level, he says as well, those who are in authority are actually his God-ordained ministers to keep a healthy, safe environment functioning on this planet of fallen creatures and sinful men. He goes so far as to say that that person actually becomes God's minister, the law enforcement or forever, bearing a weapon to deal with those who are evildoers for the benefit of others. Notice the Bible both in Romans 13 and here in our text, look with me in verse 14, gives an interesting insight as the purpose and role of civil government. Look with me here in verse 14. The Bible here, again, consistently says the same thing regarding those who are sent from local government. He says, sent, verse 14, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. See, the Bible teaches that those in civil government have been given a God-ordained authority and they should honor those who do what is good and righteous in the culture, but they also should carry out sentence and punishment upon those who are evildoers. The scriptures teach that we are not really called personally to take vengeance for ourselves. However, the Bible teaches that God has established a God-ordained system of civil government under his God-given authority to establish laws for a healthy and safe society. And with that, a judicial system and a law enforcement system that is intended to then oversee that and render proper punishment to those who offend and violate those laws and so forth by becoming evildoers in the society. Point being this, a proper government system via its police departments and its judicial system is performing their God-intended role when they justly punish evil doers in the culture. Because it is intended by God's controlled manner to serve as a deterrent to evil on the earth and to protect other individuals from harm and corruption through evil doing. And when civil authorities do not punish evil, they actually disregard their God-given responsibility on the earth and create a greater detriment to society. Here the Bible opens wide this responsibility and scope of submission by verse 13 telling us that we should submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. The Bible says, look, our submission should go to every ordinance and institution of man. So family, school, workplaces, church, police departments, governments, again, organizations, in all those different institutions, there are usually established policies, there are rules that are established, and those things, God's saying, should be submitted to. They should. In our society, governmentally, there are laws regarding marriage, civil laws regarding marriage. If people say, oh, we don't need to get married, that's just a piece of paper. We're married in God's eyes. Right. There are laws that have been established by our government regarding marriage. And if marriage to you is just a piece of paper before you get married, it's going to be to you nothing but just a piece of paper after you get married. 
that's just a, a lame pseudo-spiritual excuse for violating the commands of God. There are laws that exist regarding our work and taxes and those kind of things in regards to the government. Laws that exist that say you can make this much money and the rest of it is to be given to taxes and so forth. And that is law and it should be submitted to. It should be submitted to. We shouldn't be those who are working under the table and taking money and not paying proper taxes to the government upon it. That is violating the law. We should not be operating our business and doing things in a way where we are cheating, paying proper taxes. That's the law. We're to obey the law. Matthew chapter 17, we find an occasion where Jesus with Peter tells Peter, go pay the taxes. Pay the taxes for you and pay the taxes for me. Jesus himself observed these same things. And because the greatest area of real challenge in that ancient culture in Peter's day was civil authorities who were harassing and oppressing believers in a very corrupt Roman government and a very anti-Christian culture. Peter says here, therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as the supreme ruler or to governors, the idea is local government, to those who are also sent out by him. Again, the idea is to be submissive to authority, their decisions, their policies. And look, I understand. I understand that there are times and we are not going to agree. I'll be the first to raise my hand in regards to how people operate in politics and politicians and decisions and so forth. However, we are still to respect the position that God has allowed them to be in. And the way that we respond to those things, our submission will speak a message to them about who we are. And most people in authority are pleasantly shocked and surprised when they find someone who, even if they do disagree, says, but I will comply because you have a position of authority and therefore I'll, just, I'll simply respect that. And it's a powerful testimony. And Peter says here, our motivation, if nothing else, he says, verse 13, do it for the Lord's sake. <laughs> do it for the Lord's sake. Which means... I do it out of direct obedience to the Lord. I may not even agree, but out of obedience to the Lord, I do that, however, to want to honor the Lord for his sake, which reveals sometimes when we are not submissive, my submission issue really is with God's authority in my life. And sometimes an inability to submit to authority is really a personal vertical issue that I'm not truly in submission to God and God's established order of things. And therefore, God says, in a sense, you're disregarding me and my word. And there's a submission issue that has to happen vertically before it can happen horizontally. The only rare exception, of course, is as the Bible tells us and shows us in the book of Acts and other places, if we are asked to do something that directly contradicts the word of God or the clearly revealed word of God. But I would say those times are rare. And if civil disobedience is something that we need to do, we better have chapter and verse in hand and be very sure that it's not just a conviction issue or an attitude, but it's something clearly contrary to what the word of God tells us, at which point a higher allegiance to God is certainly understandable. Peter goes on, verse 15, saying, "...for this is the will of God." That again, by doing good, he says, a second time, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So Peter says, in doing these things, verse 11 to 14, we become a powerful conviction among those who he calls are foolish men, ignorant of the ways of God. And he says, we actually put them to silence by our good doing. The word literally is, we actually muzzle them. God desires that we muzzle 
the ignorance and erroneous speech of those who don't understand the ways of God by our good behavior, not by our arguing, not by our protesting, not by our being resistant and stubborn to prove our point. The lesson is God's will is that I would silence them through my good behavior that answers their foolish ideas that they may have. Proverbs 25 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head and the Lord will reward you. Romans 12 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Very simply put, the way many times to even overcome an enemy, listen, is to kill them with kindness. Try it this week. Try to kill them with kindness. Rather than engage, rather than resist, rather than have to prove your point or exercise your right, try just killing them with kindness by loving them even when it's difficult. He goes on, verse 16, saying, as free yet not using your liberty, notice, as a cloak or cover-up for vice, sinful behavior, but as bondservants of God. So Peter's warning here again is that though we are free in Christ, though we do live by grace, we never want to use the grace of God or our Christian liberty or freedom, which we do have, we don't live under the law, but we never want to use our Christian liberty as a license for selfish purposes where the mentality begins to develop subtly. You know, Christ has made us free, so we really don't have to be submitted to anybody. We submit to God. God's our master. And, you know, I, I only have to submit to God. And whatever he says to me personally, that's what I'll submit to because I am free and I'm a servant of the Lord. Yes, we're free, but we're free to be bondservants of God who gives us instructions in, our, in his word as to how we're to interrelate with people on the earth and be careful because I, I see this on occasion you know type of thing where it's you know well you know I don't have to listen to you know my boss I listen to God or you know I don't have to listen to my husband he's not a Christian I listen to God I read my Bible and pray I don't listen to my husband or I don't listen to my parents. They're not even Christians. I'm the one that's a Christian in the family. Or, or my parents, they don't pray or read their Bible anywhere. So th- th- I listen to God. I'm spiritual. I listen to God. Listen, be careful. Many a times, more often than not, that is just, quite honestly, a spiritual cover-up, a cloak for rebellion in your heart. And selfish resistance for observing what the Word of God says in regards to, in a family, the husband is the head of the home. And therefore, for the Lord's sake, you should submit to your husband's ultimate decision in situations. That's God's order. As children, you should submit to your parents. In your job place as a servant, you should submit to your employer, to your master. That is proper. And we need to be careful in this area. We don't want to try and cover up our wrong attitudes with spiritual excuses. And Christian liberty is never supposed to be a license for sin. And we can do this in different areas. We just we have to be really careful here. Really careful. Because in this area or many areas, we can begin to get so comfortable with the grace of God that we can start to abuse it a little bit. And we start to get a little loose in regards to what we do and don't do because, hey, we, we know the power of the blood of Jesus and I'll just pray for forgiveness afterwards and I'll eventually repent at some point and we've got to be careful there. We don't want to trample underfoot the grace of God. 
We don't ever use our Christian liberty and God's grace as a cover-up for sinful living. Galatians 5 says, Brethren, you've been called to liberty, but don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Very, very important. He says, listen, we have liberty, but we have freedom to not live under the power of sin so that instead we can live in such a way where we are servants of God, fulfilling his will and his purposes. Finally, verse 17, Peter says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. So he concludes with kind of these little concise, short, direct commands that really summarize, if you look at verse 17, what it means to just honestly be a good citizen or a godly citizen serving God in a practical way. He says, first of all, honor all. Honor everybody, he says. The word honor means to value and respect. He's saying show respect for everybody. Value everybody. Why? Because God values people. He created people, so we should value and respect and honor everybody as important in our world. He says love the brotherhood. The idea is stay committed to God's family. Keep in touch in, in a loving relationship with the family of God. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. And that means to retain a reverence for God's authority and ultimate power, knowing God can discipline and judge at any time. We should have a healthy fear of God. And he says as well, honor the king, again, or exercise respect for God-ordained authority. Be submissive. And would you agree, if we live out those simple things that Peter just said, surely... If we lived that out, we would have a powerful influence on the culture around us. You know, this morning I would leave you with this thought. We have a world that Jesus wants to reach. He wants to reach that world and our lives as Christians are the advertisement on this planet. So this morning, let us ask ourselves, as a Christian, how much of what you believe is actually affecting the way you behave each and every day? As a Christian this morning, what does your conduct communicate about Christianity? What does it communicate about what it means to follow Jesus Christ? And ask the Lord, seek him to help you to walk worthy of the calling you've received. And this morning, if you're here and your excuse is as an unbeliever, a non-Christian, well, these Christians, listen, I apologize if that was the case. But we are sinners saved by grace just like you. And I would ask you this, Look at Jesus Christ and look to him to be saved. There's coming a day of visitation when you're going to meet God and you've got to be ready. And the way to be ready is to realize you're an imperfect sinner just like all the other people on this planet and Jesus Christ is the only Savior. He died for your sins and rose again. If you look to him and believe upon him, he can save your soul. Let's stand together. We'll have our musicians come close us in a song of worship this morning.